Well, happy Mother's Day, Arbor. Before we begin, I want to take 30 seconds, and I'd love to address a couple people in my life. Um, I get that this may not be fair, it's not balanced, and it might not even be right, but I have a microphone, and there's basically nobody here to stop me. And so I want to say to my mom, first off, thank you. Thank you so much for um, uh, everything. Thank you for diving into the pool and destroying your ankle when I bravely jumped into the deep end of the water. Thank you for praying the hell out of me and for always pushing me to Jesus. For that, I am so grateful, Mom. To my wife, I want to say you are courageous to live with those kids 24 hours a day, seven days a week, without a break, all the time. Man, it inspires me. I'm almost moved to help. (laughs) Almost. But babe, honestly, in all seriousness, you've always dreamed of being a mom. And I just want to say that you are killing it. You are doing an amazing job. I don't think our kids realize that they are living with a superhero, and I am humbled and I am honored to be your partner. To all the other moms out there, I am sorry that you did not make my list, but I truly hope that you have the best day ever and that you feel the love. You may not be with your children, but you feel the love of your family today. This morning, I'd like to continue the series we're doing on Peter. Our goal, we've said this from the very beginning, is not simply to learn more about Peter, although that will happen. What we want to do is we want to better understand Jesus through the life of Peter. It is all about Jesus. We'll say it over and over again here. It is always going to be about Jesus. We wouldn't even know who Peter was if it wasn't for his interactions with Jesus. Peter simply provides us an inside view, an inside perspective on the man who changed the world. And so this morning, what I'd like to do is I'd like to focus on a section of Peter's life in Acts chapter 12. At this point, bring you up to speed. Peter has dropped his nets. He moved from an ordinary fisherman, and now he is a disciple. He is a follower of Jesus. He has, along the way, made some big, bold moves and got some things right, but he's also made some mistakes and got a few things wrong, but Jesus has forgiven him, and not only forgiven him for those, he has restored him as well. And so now, Peter has finally become the faith-filled leader that Jesus called him to be. It's about 10 years after the resurrection, and the church is in its infancy, and Peter has been arrested and thrown in jail for preaching the name of Jesus. And so he is locked down. He is stuck. He can't get out. It is the same thing every single day. He can't go to a restaurant. He can't go to a tanning salon if he'd like. He can't even go to Costco without wearing a mask. And if he does, it takes half the day. He can't go camping, which I don't understand at all all, but thank goodness that he ordered and stocked up on toilet paper early on or he'd be in some real trouble. In the beginning, it was probably a little bit fun or maybe even a little bit novel, but time has gone on, and at this point in time, it is no longer fun. It is, it is downright terrible. We want to be done with this thing. A man can only do so many puzzles. 
And obviously, I'm not talking about Peter anymore, but the good news is that Peter is about to be liberated. Peter, the liberated, the bad news is, is going to be at least another month for us. And so, let's look at Acts chapter 12, verse 1. We're going to break this thing down verse by verse. Here's what it says. About that time, King Herod began to persecute some believers in the church. Now, when it comes to spotting a Herod in the New Testament, it is literally a little bit tricky to figure out who's who because there are a lot of Herods. Herods are all over the place. In fact, there are six Herods mentioned in the New Testament. There's Herod the Great, Herod, the, um, Herod Archelaus, Herod Antipas, Herod Philip the Tetrarch, Herod Agrippa, which the first is the one we're talking about right here, and then there's Herod Agrippa II. Now, I could sit here and I could explain the differences between the different Herods and who did what to who and, and whatnot, but I don't have the time and you don't have the time. And so let me point out what, what you probably already know, and that is this, is that there is no such thing as a good Herod. They're bad all the way through. Bad men, self-centered, centric men, murderers. These are the king. These are the people that are trying to stop the faith, the early Christian church. And in verse two, here's what it says. It says, he, King Herod, had James, the brother of John, put to death with the sword. Now the writer Luke says this pretty matter of fact, kind of like Spock-like, no fluff, straight to the point. James, the brother of Jesus, was put to death with the sword. Now with the sword means in, in, in the text, it means he was beheaded. He was decapitated. Um, it's a little disturbing, probably why you've never heard this Bible story, because it's not done in Sunday school on a flannel graph growing up. But this event right here shook the early church. It ushered in fear, because if James wasn't safe, then nobody was going to be. James was not the first martyr. That was Stephen. He was stoned. He was the first martyr. But James was the very first disciple to be executed for his faith. This is James, son of Zebedee, son of thunder, one of Jesus' inner circle. Jesus had 12 disciples, but within the 12, he had three that he drew in close to himself. Peter, John, and John's brother, James. And so his death shattered the illusion that somehow the 12 had this unique divine protection over them. It's not the case. In fact, one of the best stories I ever heard when it came to James's execution was from a guy named Eusebius. He's an early church historian. Here's what he writes. He, he talks about a soldier who was assigned to guard um, James. And while he was in front of the judge, James gave his testimony. He shared his witness on what he witnessed when it came to Christ. And that guard gave his life to Jesus in that moment and willingly was executed alongside James as a brand new believer in brand new faith. James had a huge impact, huge impact. Verse 3. When Herod saw how much this pleased the Jews, and by this meaning the execution of James, he proceeded to seize Peter also. Now the author Luke 
is using a powerful literal technique called a faint. He's giving us the impression that what happened to James, an important character, is now about ready to happen to Peter, the very important character, or the big man, the big guy. In screenwriting, this would be referred to as the all hope is lost moment. Things are dire. There is no reason to hope. And what God is doing here is what he does so often in history, and we see it in his word, is that he is stacking the odds against himself so that only he can receive the credit and the glory when he chooses to rescue Peter, when he chooses to free Peter, when he chooses to liberate him. Verse 4, after arresting him, Herod put Peter in prison, handing him over to be guarded, look at this, (laughs) by four squads of four soldiers each. Now, I'm not great at math, never going to claim to be, but if I count on my fingers, I can come to the realization that that is 16 soldiers are guarding one man. This seems like a little bit overkill because this is a fisherman. They're not guarding Rambo in this moment. And so why? Why the high security? Here's why. This is actually the third time that Peter has been imprisoned. And he has miraculously and mysteriously escaped before. Acts chapter 5. And so Herod is not playing any games this time. He is not going to make the same mistake twice. So he's going to go overboard, over the top, to keep Peter in prison so that he can be there for the trial and the next day, and then he can be executed. Verse 5. But while Peter was in prison, the church prayed earnestly, some translations say consistently, prayed for him. Friends, this is a key point in the passage. And it's a little bit of a contentious point, actually, which we'll talk about in a little bit. But right now, I want to remind us this, and that is prayer is powerful. Prayer is powerful. I have seen it. I have personally witnessed changed hearts restored marriages. I've seen um, people um, provided for financially through prayer. People have overcome fertility, infertility, and it's cured cancer and, and, and brought home prodigals. There is power in prayer. And James, the half-brother of Jesus, so this is actually a different James. There's a lot of Herods. There's a lot of James in the Bible. The, it says this. He says, the prayer of a righteous person And then King James, yet another James, uh, uh, says this. It says, the fervent prayer of a righteous person avails much. Other translations say accomplishes much, produces much, are powerful and effective. Friends, prayer is powerful. And for you, prayer warrior moms that are out there today, and you keep praying and you keep praying and you keep praying, I just want to encourage you to keep on going to keep it up. You may feel at times that you are praying to the ceiling and that God is not hearing you, but according to scripture, you are making a difference. And there are so many of us that are here today because of the prayer warrior, the impact, the the petitions to God on our behalf from our mom. Prayer is powerful. Watch what it does in the next few verses. Verse six. 
It says, the night before Herod was to bring him to trial, Peter, bound with two chains, and here's my favorite part, was sleeping between two soldiers while the sentries stood guard at the entrance. I love this. I love that Peter is sleeping. He is sleeping on the night before he is supposed to die to be executed like James. He's taking a little cat nap, which tells us that Peter can pretty much sleep anywhere. There are a lot of people who are like, I I can't sleep on a plane. Peter would have no problem sleeping on a plane. And I relate to him in this. I could sleep anywhere, at any time, any space. It's not pretty, friends. It is mouth wide open. There is drool all over the place. It's how it's done. When my kids come into the bedroom at night, it does not wake me up. And it's one of the most beautiful blessings I've ever received. My wife asks me the next morning, did you hear that? And in all honesty, I can say no, because I was out. Friends, years ago, I went to a concert when I was in college, it was Church of Rhythm of all things, and I volunteered to set up for that conference, to, to, to set everything up, the stage and everything like that. I was so tired, so worn out, that I went underneath the stage as the concert was getting started, and I took a nap. Friends, I slept under the stage during the whole concert and missed the whole entire thing. I can sleep anywhere, and so can Peter. This is what the peace of God does. This is the peace that doesn't make any sense whatsoever. When you have a certainty in your eternity, you can rest. It is well with my soul. Peter shows no signs of anxiety. He's totally okay sleeping in the midst of soldiers in the circumstances that are around him because he has the peace that passes all understanding. Verse seven, suddenly there was a bright light in the cell and an angel of the Lord stood before Peter. He struck Peter on the side to awaken him because Peter's out cold and said, quick, get up. And the chains fell off his wrists. Friends, this is also what God does. This is what God does. Not only does he provide peace in circumstances that seem dire, he also releases chains. The chains drop and fall off. Chains of regret, chains of guilt, chains of addiction. Sin drops, falls, is released, and I am so grateful for that. And if you are a faith follower, a Christ follower, we are grateful for the grace of God because it is new every single morning, and we need it. Verse 8, and this is very interesting right here. Then the angel said to him, put on your clothes and sandals. And Peter did so. So let's think back on here. Peter, he is in jail, in prison. He's got 16 guards, two of which he's tied to with two sets of chains. He knows that he's going to die the next morning and he is sleeping. How is he sleeping? In the buff, friends, he is naked as can be. Now, he's either really secure with the body God gave him, or he's really secure in the God who is with him. And I think it is the latter. Back to verse 8. Now, wrap up your cloak around you. Wrap your cloak around you and follow me. 
the angel ordered. So Peter left the cell following the angel. But all the time he thought, it is only a dream. And he realized it when, or he didn't realize it was actually happening. Basically, Peter is sleepwalking here, or sleep running, if you will, through the jail cell. Verse 10, they passed by the first guard station and then the second and came at last to the iron gate leading into the city. The gate opened for them all by itself and they went out. They walked down the street when at once the angel disappeared. And friends, Peter is free. Peter is liberated. And in response to this section and in response to this whole passage, I have this. I have a thought, I have a question, and I have an answer. In that order, I want to talk about a thought, a question, and then an answer. Here's my thought. God's will will prevail. God's will will prevail. God is sovereign. I am baffled. I cannot help but be struck with Peter's lack of involvement in his prison escape. He doesn't do much. He is sleeping. The angel has to wake him up. The chains fall off of his wrists by themselves. He's escorted out while he's sleepwalking, not even sure what's going on. And then the door, he doesn't even have to open the gate by himself. The door opens for him. Next thing he knows, he finds himself free in the streets. The story continues. What happens from that point in time is Peter then runs to a house. He goes to John Mark's mother's house. Her name is Mary. There's a lot of Herods. There's a lot of James. There's a lot of Marys in the Bible. But this is John Mark, the the writer, gospel writer of Mark. And this is his mom. And they go to her. He goes to her house. Peter's there, goes to the door. He knocks on the door. And then a servant girl comes down. And realizes it's Peter, but in all of her excitement, she does not open the door. She goes back and tells the people who are earnestly praying for him that Peter is at the door. Your prayer has been answered. And they're like, nah, it can't be him. Which is so interesting, is it not? That we earnestly pray for something, and when God brings the answer, we fail to see that that's what it is. And that it's right there. Right? It's a whole lot of prayer, but a whole little faith. And so she goes back down, and eventually Peter comes up. And, and here's what it says in verse 17. Peter says this. Peter motioned with his hand for them to be quiet, right? Because he just escaped from jail. And described how the Lord, key words there, the Lord had brought him out of prison. The Lord brought him out of prison. It was the Lord that did this. Nobody else had done this. This was God's work. He receives the glory. An author named Bob Deffenbaugh said this. He said, the only door that failed to open that night was the door to Mary's house, which is so interesting. Peter didn't have to strive for his freedom. There wasn't a magic formula. There wasn't an equation. You do this. If Peter does this, and then God will do this, and then there will be his freedom. There wasn't a magic prayer that he needed to pray. No, Peter was simply rescued because God's will will prevail. It will. He is sovereign. Thy will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Our faith isn't in a certain outcome. When we pray, friends, our faith isn't in a certain outcome. 
It is in a God despite the outcome. It is in him. And perhaps that doesn't bring you comfort this morning. But I'll tell you this, it sure does bring me comfort because here's what I know. I know that we are his children, that I am his child, and that he is a good, good father. And in the midst of uncertainty, and in the midst of a pandemic, and in the midst of what in the heck is going to happen next, we can trust in the ability and the capability and the love of a father who cares for us. How else in the world do you think Peter could have slept in the midst of everything that was going on around him? He had this peace. In the core of his being, he believed, he knew that Jesus, the king, was not only his friend, but had his best in mind. And so nothing, nothing that they could have done to him would have disturbed him because he knew God had it and that his will will prevail. And friends, that is a very, very comforting thought. And so that's my thought. Here's my question. And friends, this is a hard question. It raises, and if we're honest, it raises concern about God's character. So here it is. Why did God let James die and then liberate Peter? Why did God let James die on the front end of this passage and then liberate Peter on the back end? Do we assume that nobody was praying for James? I have to imagine that they were. James was a pretty important person. He was a big deal. And so did they not pray hard enough? Did they not pray long enough? Did they not pray in the right way? Did they not hold their hands right? Why in the world would God answer one prayer and then not answer another? Why in the world would God allow James to get the sword and then Peter to get a get out of jail free card? It doesn't seem fair. It doesn't seem right. And honestly, it doesn't even feel loving, does it not? When Maggie, my daughter, was in the hospital, we would go every single day for six weeks for radiation. We'd go in the morning because in the morning you weren't allowed to eat. And so they had the kids, the little kids, go first into the radiation room. And so Maggie would go in there, and she was not the first one. There was always another family before us. It was a family of a girl named Zalta. And Zalta was another three-year-old girl who had brain cancer. Except her cancer was slightly different. Her cancer was blocking her body from growing. She had the head of a three-year-old and the body of a nine-month-old. And so this family from Ukraine, um, the mom's name uh, was Veronica, and I've been recently chatting with her online again. And she was telling me how they just tried everything. Not only every doctor in um, their country, but they kept getting doors slammed. So they went to every doctor in the world to figure out what's going on with their beloved little girl. And so finally they found a doctor, the same doctor that Maggie had at Children's, who said, I think we know what it is and I think we can help, but you've got to find your way here. They're like, well, we don't have the money for that. And they said, well, just come and we'll figure it out. And so they left their family, the rest of their kids, with other family members. And they left Ukraine and they came to the United States and they stayed in the Ronald McDonald house. And every morning when we would come in, 
we would see this family and we would connect with them and they became friends. And at one point in time, Maggie pointed to, um, to the mom's hair and saw a clip and, and said, that's pretty. And so the mom took it out and gave it to Maggie and they gave her a gift, a dress that Maggie just loved. But here's, here's the question. This is what Zalta looks like today. The radiation worked. She was healed. The radiation took care of the blockage and now the rest of her body has caught up to her, her head and now she is a normal, healthy, young little girl. And so here's the question. Why does Zalta get to live and Maggie have to die? Why is it that James had to die and then Peter is liberated? Here's the answer. Purpose. It's a hard answer. Purpose. But let me explain. Peter was freed for a purpose. Now this is, this is clear. This is simple. This makes sense. To continue to build the church, that's why he was allowed to come out of prison. That's why God saved him, to further the kingdom Jesus wanted Peter to finish pouring the foundation that he started. And so Peter's job in building the church was not done. And Peter understood this. He did. Look what he wrote near the end of his life, looking back on his life. He said, you are free, but still you are God's servants. He's saying, I am free, but even though I am free, I am still God's servants. Peter, servant. Peter had freedom through Christ but as a servant of Christ, he had a job. He had a responsibility. He had a mission, a calling. He had a purpose to fulfill. And that was to build the church. And that's easy. So, what about James? What was James' purpose? James was also freed for a purpose. He really was. Yes, Peter received the angelic escort, if you will, out of prison. But James also received an angelic escort into heaven. Jesus let James die on purpose for a purpose. Why? Number one, he had a better life to give him. Jesus had a better life for James. Don't forget, friends, that James got the better end of the deal here. He really did. Death swallowed up by victory in Christ Jesus. And somehow, from our point of view, it feels like James was neglected. But that is so far, far, far from the truth. He was, in fact, the very first disciple, this is amazing, the very first disciple to receive the promised gift that was given to all the disciples on the Last Supper, that last night with Jesus. When Jesus says, I go and I prepare a place for you, James was the very first apostle, the very first disciple to see that promised place that Jesus was preparing. Yes, this is a crap deal for James if there is no afterlife. This is terrible if there is no Jesus and there is no eternity. But thank God, thank Jesus that that is not the case. Catch this. Jesus had a better life to give James. But even in James's death, he had purpose. There was purpose in James's death. It unleashed the scattering of the early church. If Jesus's 
inner three, if James could be killed, executed, then nobody was safe. And so James's liberation into eternity magnified his witness and caused people to leave Jerusalem and out into the world, into places where people needed to hear the good news of Christ and the gospel where they needed to go. And so James was freed through his death for a purpose. And friends, so was Maggie. Maggie was too. Her little life and death affected more lives for Christ than I can count and more than I will ever, ever know. Would I have loved and preferred to have it in a different way? Yeah, absolutely. But I tell you this, I think Maggie's okay right now. I think she's doing fine. I know that she has met Jesus. And who knows, she could have even already have met James. It's purpose. Peter had a purpose. James had a purpose. And we ourselves, we are freed for a purpose. If you know Jesus, we are freed from sin. Jesus himself says, truly, truly, I say to you, everyone who sins is a slave to sin. The slave does not remain in the house forever. The son, speaking of Jesus, remains forever. So, if the son sets you free, you are free indeed. We are free from sins, past, present, and future. The chains drop. And if you need that today, if you want that today, if you don't have that, and you're longing for something like that, to feel the weight of the guilt and the shame just drop away like Peter's chains, you don't need a preacher, you don't need a pastor to pray with you. You simply need to talk to Jesus yourself. He is here. He just wants to listen All you have to say is, Lord, I'm sorry, and repent. Repent is different from being sorry. Repent means you turn away from your sin, that you go and you sin no more, and you say, Lord, I'm done with that life. I want life in you, and because of the cross and the resurrection, we have that. And so, friends, as Christians, practically, we can rest. Number one, we can rest in God's sovereignty. God's will will prevail. It is a very comforting thought. It should bring us peace, the kind of peace that Peter had when he slept between guards in the buff in crazy circumstances. That's the kind of peace that the sovereignty of God offers us. His will will be done. God's will will prevail. And as his children, he has our best in mind. Secondly, we are to live for his purpose. We are to live for his purpose, like Peter experienced, and then he would later declare, we are free, but still, we are God's servants. And friends, we are free. We are free from sin. It is gone, it is no more. But we have been freed for a purpose. And if you are still breathing, then you have a purpose. A friend of mine used to always say, if you're not dead, God's not done. And that is so true. As long as we're breathing in and out, God has a purpose for us. And he has freed us to do that. 
freed us into the place where we experience the greatest freedom of all freedom, where we step into eternity, what James experienced. Peter teaches us that we can walk in freedom, but just because we have the freedom to do whatever we want, we should still align ourselves with God's purpose because that's why he freed us. And you may have heard this before, but God does have a plan for your life and he does have a purpose for your life and it's good and he loves you like crazy no matter what the heck you have done. You may think, nah, not me, that's for somebody else. No, it's for you. He died for you. He loves you. And he's telling you right now, I have a purpose for your life. Would you embrace it? Friends, let us rest in his sovereignty. That he's got all of this under control. And let us live for the purpose that he has set before us. That is my hope. That is my hope personally. And that is my hope for you and our church. Let's pray.